All right, let's pray one more time. That's the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, it's uh, probably been an up and down week for everyone else, and I know for me, it, sometimes it feels like all I do is address a series of problems as my whole life. But uh, but we know that there's so many blessings around us too, and and, uh, and and you just remind me again this week to to not just see the things that I don't have or I wish I had, but to also see the many many things that we do have from your hand of blessing. And think of what Scripture says: How will He not along with Him that is along with Christ freely give us all things? Um, enjoy the fellowship here uh, together. This is from you as well. Thank you that we're not too small for you. Um, that you are here with us this morning, just like you are with, with every assembly of believers, those meeting openly, those large meetings, medium-sized, small, tiny, uh, those that meet secretly uh, in places where they are persecuted. Uh, you are there in, 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 by your Holy Spirit uh, and, and your word. And I pray you would bless that this morning. Uh, bless... Um, all of us as we fellowship together, remind one another, as Larry likes to say, we're all learning together and we're all growing together. And we thank you that, that we can look to you um, uh, in whatever circumstance we are in. And uh, wash us again in your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Jesus' final words to the world, right? John is finishing up the public ministry of Jesus, and uh, I say public because while while he did go to the cross in view of the public and so forth, it really is not part of his ministry, you know, in, in the proper sense, right? He he was really there um, to to bear our sin, right? That's, that's the, the real reason for that. Um, I've been, in my other John Bible study, we're at the cross now, and we're, uh, I've just been just that rich resource, John MacArthur's um, One Perfect Life is so, so helpful because he pulls together all the gospel accounts into one narrative, combines it together, so you get the full, you know, um, like surround sound of experience in the gospels. And uh, the six hours on the cross divided into two three-hour increments, and the second half of that, we, we had a message from John some about a year or so back that really still has an impact on me. Just those hours of darkness when he was hanging there and didn't say a word. He was taking our sin. Father, you know, Satan and the world system had its turn and the Father had his. Anyway, so a profound time. But 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 Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry, right? And and all the gospels follow this same kind of pattern. They, they move fairly quickly, and then they start slowing down as, as you get near the end. And then there's a lot of material in all the Gospels that are, um, it surprised me when I backed up and looked at the whole uh, outline, all the Gospels together, uh, just how much material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, is in those days be between the triumphal entry and the cross. Okay? And it's important to kind of realize that because there's a marked change in Jesus's message. He's, he's very, very pointed, very, very sharp. He's there in the temple and he's very sharp, very pointed, and very direct with the leaders. Okay. And he ministers to the people. He heals. 
Uh, he cleanses the temple, right, at the start of that, and then he's, as it were, in the, in the house. Here's the Lamb of God in the Father's house, right? The Passover Lamb in the Father's house with the family for the days leading up to the time when he's going to be crucified. And so John doesn't really, because the other Gospels contain so much of that content, including all of it, this course, I believe, is in that. Um, uh, in fact, our prior notes, uh, or, or let's see here. Um, the front of these notes, never mind. <laughs> um, tell, kind of give you, you know, in summary form, all the all the, the discourses and things that happen, and a lot of parables there, um, in which he is warning the nation. You know, like the landowner, for example, who went away, right, and sent servants, and they were persecuted, and finally sent his son, and he was killed, right. That whole thing. Uh, those are all warnings to the nation that they are on the cusp of rejecting their Messiah, rejecting the Son of God. John doesn't, um, he doesn't give us a lot of that detail because it's already there in the other Gospels. So what he is doing, though, and that's why I titled this uh, Jesus' Final Words to the World, even though we still have some more of chapter 12 coming up uh, in which Jesus is uh, going to speak. So beginning in verse 44, the very... I kind of debated myself, well, maybe that's the final word to the world, but but I think what verse 44 to the end of the chapter is doing is um, is John is kind of going back and, and, and sort of summarizing Jesus' message for the whole three years, right? Uh, these words right here are actually what he spoke in that time period, again, between the triumphal entry and the cross, John's summary of basically what he was saying during that time. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So what I'd like to do today, if we can, is finish this up because we do need to keep moving. Uh, and I hope we're not crawling, um, walking through John. <laughs> we don't want to drive through John. You know, sometimes um, and there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which, you know, it's good to be up in an airplane. You can see a very different perspective, 10,000-foot view, but boy, you miss a lot of detail, too, right? So there's a place for that, but there's also a place for walking, you know, and you see a lot more when you walk and when you drive through. But, um, uh, but I do want, I don't want to drag our feet either, and so hopefully we'll finish this up and move, move on into Chapter 12. I'm very eager to get into the next chapters, uh, the upper room. So much encouragement. Uh, and, and also some warnings there for them and for us as well. All right, um, so let's let's get into chapter 12, uh, start with verse 20, right? This is point number one in our outline. Gentile proselytes seek Jesus, verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, we were at, uh, we spent a few years at, uh, at another church in town. This was before Dad uh, got the pastor and so on. Um, and I remember on the pulpit of that church, they had they had take you, you remember those they're little they're more popular than they are now, but the these little um 
pieces of plastic tape that you could select a letter and you'd make the impression. You remember that? And it would have like, a, it was a red background with white letters, almost like a typewriter, you know, impressed in the, in the plastic, uh, stuck to the pulpit. And it was that little statement from the, I didn't know it then, but now I do, uh, the Greeks. It just simply said on the pulpit right there, whoever was speaking, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that's pretty cool. But uh, but that's these are these are God fearing Greeks, right? Uh, we saw that proselytes. These are these are uh, people who in whose heart God is 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 at work. The Holy Spirit is is working, even though He hasn't been poured out officially yet on on the church and taking up residence in the temple, the body of the believer, right? Um, but He's still at work. He's still very very much at work, and um, and He's working in these. Parts of these people and they come to Philip who who has a Greek name and is from a an area that's very close to or adjacent to um, the largely Gentile areas um, and, uh, and and then he in turn takes them to Andrew right and we, we looked at that thought that was a little strange except that every time we encounter Andrew he's bringing somebody to Jesus right first it was his brother Simon later Peter right and then it was the boy on chapter 6 with the lunch uh, that the Lord used to feed 20-some-odd um, thousand people, 5,000 men, and those women and children. And then uh, here, Philip goes to Andrew, and the two of them together bring these people to Jesus. And Jesus' response uh, is what we've been looking at as point number two. Jesus discloses the way of the cross for himself and his servants. Um, and that would start with verse 23, which says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. <clears throat> um, and we have, we'll stop there, even though our point continues on to verse 28, which we'll get to here in a minute. What we were looking at last time is the way of the cross, right? And and I asked the question, well, what it, it was kind of, it seems like a strange <coughs> response. You would kind of expect Jesus to, to see these these uh, Greek proselytes coming with Philip and Andrew, and and, and, and she's, oh, welcome, hey, yeah, yeah, embraces them, and, you know, uh, glad to see that, you know, Holy Spirit, whatever you would say, right, to them. But he, he makes these statements here, which are um, obviously in the context of verse 24, he's, he's or sorry, verse uh, 23, says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, okay? Well, if we remember back in chapter 3, he told Nicodemus about... <laughs> the interpretation of that strange sign that God had given to Moses at the time when the when the Israelites were being 
bitten by those poisonous snakes, right? Now, they were getting what they deserved. It looks weird to us, whatever, but, but they were getting what they deserved it, you know. Um, and and what, if, what Jesus interprets that and says, just like that serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And so he, that is feeding into this right here, where the hour has come, as it were, symbolically for that serpent lifted up. I didn't say a whole lot about that last time, but, you know, I did wonder, and, and maybe I'm sure the, because there's never given an interpretation of that anywhere in the Old Testament, right? It's not until that conversation, conversation with Nicodemus that we have God's interpretation of how to understand that, how to unpack that strange symbol, because you would expect I mean, it could be anything. You know, why not a, you know, a sphere or a pyramid or a lamb, right? A, a lamb is a sacrificial animal. Why, why put a serpent on a pole? And I, I believe, bless you, uh, you probably have heard this before, and I think I think they're right. Um, some people do anything for a blessing. <laughs> um, it's, it's just symbolic of the fact that he became a curse, right? The Old Testament does say, cursed is anyone who is lifted up on a tree, right? And so uh, Jesus became the curse. Same with the crown of thorns. When we when we get there, we're going to see that. John does talk about that. Um, you know, the other Gospels as well, how they mocked him, you know, as a, a caricature of, of the Jewish king. They were really making as much fun of the Jews as they were of Jesus when they did that. What they didn't realize is that the crown of thorns also pictures that. Remember that the thorns would spring up, uh, that the earth would yield thorns instead of cooperation with us, and you got to work hard. It's not not just work, but toil, right? Um, and that's an interesting study in itself. What's the difference between work and toil? But um, but anyway, Jesus is the is the is the serpent. He's the curse, uh, you know. And, and it's interesting. You look to the very thing that you should run from. <laughs> you should be running from that serpent on the ground, but you look to the one. Well, there's a lot there. But the point is that. He says, okay, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what do you mean by that? How does going to the cross and being lifted up like that going to bring glory to you? Well, this is in the context of these Gentile people who are, who are coming to him and calling on his name, right? Um, in our Bible study in the, in the Ramble, we're, we're going through... Uh, John, or not John, uh, Daniel, and I was thinking about that. Uh, we're just uh, in. We were just in chapter seven, and there's this wonderful. Let me just read it to you here. Wonderful uh, prophecy that Daniel sees, or, or I should say, a vision that he sees that is a is a prophecy, a summary of what God is doing, and. Um, uh, Be sure I get my, my right here. Okay. Uh, let's see. At the near the end of Daniel 7, it, the court has, it, it, I'm trying to summarize a lot. There's a lot going on here. But the Ancient of Days, as the Father sits, right? And, and the, the Son, the one like the Son of Man comes up and, and, and he is given, it doesn't say it, 
it's hard to get this, it's easy to get this mixed up with the one in Revelation where he comes and takes the scroll. There's more detail here that Daniel leaves out, but he's given authority and dominion. And there's all of there's there's these various kingdoms, these uh, beasts that picture these various kingdoms, and the ten horns and the ten kings, and and uh, and then and then there's that final little horn, right, that the Antichrist. Uh, verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, that's the Antichrist, shall be taken away and consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and dominions uh, will serve and obey them. Uh, but this is this is in the context of the uh, of the Lord uh, being given. I'm sorry, I'm not laying my eyes on it, but. Um, the Gentiles will come and serve him, is the point. That's what I'm trying to get to. Is that the prophecies in the Old Testament lay out the fact that, that, that the Messiah is not just here for Israel, not here to just be a continuation and an improvement of David for Israel, but is but he will also rule the nations, right? And all of the Gentiles will come and put their hope in him. And that's what I think is happening here with that statement that he makes, um, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you can begin to see some of the Gentiles who are putting their hope in him, okay? So last time we looked at, at verse 24 in detail, uh, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this doesn't just apply to Jesus. Obviously, it does, right? But he makes application of this to those who follow him as well, right? So we see that in the next verses. And we looked at that last time. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay. So I'm calling it the way of the cross because Jesus doesn't just go through his life doing whatever and then on the weekend show up, go to the cross, accomplish atonement, and go to heaven. He has been, and we'll continue, we'll see this continue this idea continue into the next chapters is he basically calls his disciples to this same calling okay he's already called them at the beginning of his ministry they followed him around right and we've, we've even seen mark where he's begun to send them out and so on but it's not until the upper room where he really kind of brings them down to what, what, the, what it's really all about and that is to to just like i have loved you so you are to love one another, right? And how has he loved them? He has died for them many times before the cross. Think about that, right? And Paul picks up on that in, in Philippians and says, have that same mind in you, right? <clears throat> and before, just a few verses before that, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, what? 
Consider others before yourself. Prefer others. What? That's the way of the cross. That's the way of the cross. Just what Jesus did, right? And that's the lesson that we're going to see in chapter 13 as he kneels down, takes off the robes of, of Lord and Rabbi, and puts on the, the robes of the servant, and he washes their feet. He takes the low position, which is equivalent to cleaning the toilets. Nobody wants to do it. I hope somebody else beneath me. No, he, he did that. And he says, do you understand what I've done? I've left you an example. And that's what he's getting at here. So he's this is in a, in a summary form, but he's going to really drive the point home later on um, with them and with us. <clears throat> well, what's what's the point of that? It might you know from a pers- from our perspective, or you might say a fleshly perspective, um, a temporal perspective. It seems like instead of the way of the cross, you could call it the way of the loser. Why should I put other people in front of me? Why should I consider them ahead of me? Doesn't seem like the way to get ahead, right? And that's certainly not what we're told and what we tend to believe. Okay? But Jesus gives us the harvest, if you will, or the, or the, the uh, what financial, financial circles that call the ROI, return on investment. Okay? What is that? He says if if the uh, the grain of wheat doesn't die, it just remains alone, right? If your life is all about you and everything you can get and pleasing yourself, in the end, that's all you'll have. But if you die to that, and you live instead with the first two commandments. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that doesn't just mean, you know, what I say in church, but, you know, when nobody else is looking, right? And, and, and I'm giving my money, I'm giving my time, my resources, my heart belongs to Him. And then to love your neighbor as yourself, you're putting others' uh, needs up there and, and dying to just what you want all the time. And by the way, it, the way of the cross doesn't mean to just ignore yourself or that it's wrong to do something, you know, some, once in a while I hear others or even myself say, well, you know, I prayed this selfishly, you know, or something. You ever said that? Mm-hmm. As if as if doing something for yourself is a sin, okay? And that's not what he's talking about, right? Because Paul, in, in, in his letters to the uh, uh, Thessalonians, tells them that, that each believer should be working with his own hands to provide for himself and his family, right? So they have enough. I mean, if you if you never actually take care of yourself, then, they, then you become a burden for other people to have to take care of when you should be the one working to, you know, take care of yourself and then have an abundance to give to those who, who have need, right? So, you know, Scripture is not unbalanced there. It's not saying never do anything for yourself. Paul says do not merely look out for your own personal interests. It didn't say don't do it at all, right? Okay. So, by putting all this together, the point is this. God's way, the way of the cross, for Christ and for anyone who follows him, is that you become like that little seed that goes into the ground and dies and then produces more fruit. Okay, That's the only way this is going to happen. This is the only way that, that God 
And by the way, the seed, what's the seed's job? To die. <laughs> it's God who gives the increase. That's kind of hard, but you're, you're right, Eric. That's what we think, right? Because, um, okay, I need to go out here. And I need to, you know, God's listening me in his arm, and he's giving me this whole long list of all these things I need to do. Um, and and uh, the Christian life can become a real burden if you live it that way. Okay? It can become this, this burden of scurrying around. And if you're frantic, you know, Jesus is never frantic. He's never unhinged, you know. He's never on the line. Okay, there are some times when his when his uh, we're about to see that here in the next few verses, where the emotions really become very very strong for him. Okay? But he's always walking in the Father's will, and he's always on pace with the Father, knowing that the timing of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is perfect as they work through him, okay? And he, remember, he, he didn't do all this stuff just on his own. He came and emptied himself of that and, and allowed the Father to fill him up with the Holy Spirit and with his word as an example to us of how to do it. You and I are not expected to just go out and, and, and bring in this massive harvest on our own, Okay? We were talking last week about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in salvation. Absolutely. Chapter 6, crystal clear, right? No one comes to the Father unless what? Father compels them. Everyone the Father has given me will come to me. And yet, he says to the people there and to us, we've got to die so that the harvest can be, can be produced, right? Um, and, and, and earlier in uh, chapter 4, too, remember the, when Samaritan woman there, she was so excited, she left her, her jar, went to the city, told everybody, and they're all coming, and here come, here come all of these Samaritans streaming, and Jesus says to the disciples, look at the harvest. Others have worked, and you're here to reap. Right? And in other Gospels, he says, pray that the Lord will Lord the harvest to drive out workers, right? So we do have a job, and, and the, the temptation is to think, oh, okay, well, I gotta go do all this stuff for the Lord. I gotta, I, I gotta witness. I gotta pass out tracts. I gotta. Blah, 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 blah. If you think that it's all about you and what you can do for the Lord and bring it to Him, you've missed the boat, and you're gonna burn out. The seed is there to do one thing, and that's to die. Bring yourself constantly under the Lord's authority, under his sovereignty. Allow him to direct the circumstances, even, even when there's a slow driver in the way or your tire, you know, gets flat, or I don't know why I keep going to driving stretches. <laughs> Maybe because it hits home with me. But you know, when you're when you're when you're busy and things happen that interrupt you and put a, a, an odd person in your life. Uh, in that moment, instead of getting frustrated and flustered about it, because I was going to go over here and do this thing for the Lord, do you think? Realize that God is sovereign in that, right? He's, he's sovereign. Let, let him let him be God. Let God be God. And just float with it. And, 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 let, and let him, and, okay, Lord, what, what do you have for me here, right? That's it. That's it. 
There's relief in that. There's peace in that. Because now it's not up to me to save people. Amen. It's not up to me to go out and, and ensure this massive harvest. Look, Lord, right? I do one thing and I die. That's it. Or in the parable of the sower, which Dad talks a lot about. It doesn't concentrate on the sower, you know, what kind of bag he had or how he was dressed or how even the ground was prepared. It doesn't say anything about that. It's just the sower one job. Take the seed and sow it. That's it. So that's all we do. And, and sometimes the sower, you know, you don't see the results right away. That's okay. God is after faithfulness, not results. Leave the results with him. You be faithful. So the job of, of, of the disciple is to die, to follow Jesus in that, okay? Um, <clears throat> just to be faithful, to go where he wants you, to say what he wants you to say or not say, okay? Uh, whoever uh, loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When I was younger, I, I used to be a lot more enamored with this world you know, kind of excited about, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with the, ex, you know, when you're in your late teens, early 20s, and you, and you see adulthood right there, and you stand on the threshold of adulthood, and, and you're excited. Aaron's right there right now, right? Uh, you, you, you see the possibilities of the road ahead, and there's excitement about what's over the horizon. When you live a few decades, you start to realize the wisdom of... Uh, popular musician who you would know if I said his name, but he, he probably didn't say a lot of wise things in his life, but he, he did say this, you know, life is life is what happens to you while you're, um, how do you put it now, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. <laughs> Very true, right? Um, how many of you have, you have ended up in places you thought you'd never be? Right. Yeah, North Carolina, right? <laughs> Way over here in the, the weird coast. Uh, my wife may have some words about that. But, um, yeah, not just physically, but also, you know, uh, in your family, you know, or, or in your job, or in your in your own spiritual walk, or, or sins that you thought I would you would never do, and you end up it's like, how did I get here? Um, I tell as a believer. You learn to hate the world more and more, and the flesh, and because it's a lie, right? It's such a lie. It's such a lie. Promises all these wonderful things, and delivers pain and suffering and depression and anger and you know guilt and you know the world, the flesh, and the devil put on a good show, don't they? When you're young, um, but uh, you know I think that's one of the things. That the Lord is doing with us is the pain of this world is just preparing us for the next. He's creating a hunger in you. You know, when you when you sit down to eat a great meal, right? Somebody's Thanksgiving dinner or something, you worked hard several hours, and you eat it. If you're my dad, you eat it ten minutes. But uh, <laughs> uh, you spend all this time, right? And you if you starve yourself, you get up and you only have one little snack for breakfast instead of regular breakfast, right? Because you know this big meal is coming, and you starve yourself, and you get there, and you're really hungry. Well, the meal would have been the same if you had had a nice big breakfast, but you come and you're not really that hungry, right? The meal, the meal doesn't change at all. The experience is the same, but your personal experience of that meal, um, sub, so objectively the meal is the same, but subjectively your experience of it 
is enhanced when you're hungry, right? And I think that's what the Lord is, is what, the, what God in his wisdom is doing with us. The pain and the bitterness of this world and the disappointments that we feel are making us hungry for the great feast that he has in, in store for us. So that when you're there, you will rejoice, as it says in Jude, with exceeding joy. You'll be hungry for it. You won't be, oh man, I can't. It's time to die. Have you ever seen people that try to cling to life, right? And it's just, the death is coming and they, they can't stand. They don't want to see it. They don't want to talk about it. Our culture is like that. We don't talk about that. Just, we just don't. You know, push, the, push those old people who are near death, just get them out of the way. We don't want to see that. The believer, we welcome death. This is our entrance in the door. I'm ready to sit down at that meal, man. I'm hungry. Let's go. Okay? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It doesn't mean, again, you know, just, I don't mean to say, and you know, Jesus doesn't mean this either here, that, you know, there's nothing in this world to enjoy. Um, scripture says God has given us all things, what? Richly to enjoy, right? But it's, it's the, compared to what's coming, and, 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 and it, what he's driving at here is that whole philosophy of getting everything I can, like that rich man who said, I know what I'll do. I've got, I've got this massive harvest, this big, huge income dividend just dropped. Man, I'm going to build bigger barns, right? And that instead of that way of thinking, it's what can I do with the time and the money and the resources and the little space of time that I have for the advancement of God and his kingdom and for the good of people. And you live like that, there's a harvest coming for you. And it's eternal, right? Far better than anything we can get here. And then if anyone serves me, he must follow me. We're, we'll talk, we, we touched briefly on that, but we'll probably look back at this too when we get into chapter 13 because Jesus tells them, you can't come with me right now, right? Remember we saw that last time and Peter's just, his mind is blown. And, and he tells Peter, he says, you can't come right now. You will come later, okay? Um, he, they thought he meant literally following him because they had actually physically been following him, right? There's Jesus. Okay, I'm there, right? That's, that's what they've been doing. But he's, his way of, uh, the way of following him is about to change radically for them and for other believers because he's going into heaven and we're still here on earth, right? So there's a change in how we're to follow him. And that's what he really is getting at here. If anyone serves me, and it's, it's open-ended. It's not just the 12 disciples that are there and a few others or even those Greeks, but it's also us as well. Uh, you must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. And we can't go there yet, but we will, right? And he's going to tell them that and us later in chapter 14 where he says, I'm going away to what? Leave you alone and adios, best of luck. Prepare a place for you. Prepare a place. And if I'm going to prepare a place, I'm going to... I mean, it wouldn't make sense for me to go prepare a place and say, hope you make it, right? I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. I'm going to see to it that you get there. And then this last phrase, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. <clears throat> There's a lot of, several places in John where honor is, is held out, particularly chapter 5, where Jesus is talking to 
the, the Jews, the religious leaders, okay, his enemies. And he says, if, you know, my father's working till now, I'm working till now, and the father has given all judgment to the son that all may honor him. Anyone who dishonors the son dishonors the one who sent him. And there's this whole sort of discourse that the Lord makes in chapter 5 about honor. And he does it in the context of judgment, and which is interesting because I, I thought about this, that that you give even, even the criminal who is the most disrespectful person, maybe, in the room, in the courtroom, is expected to stand when the judge comes in, right? Because the judge is not just a some person that's like, ooh, super one man, you know, whatever. It's not the judge, but what the judge represents, right? The role that that person has. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting there in chapter 5 that he talks about that, that the son is honoring the father, the father is honoring the son, but, but you dishonor me, he says to them. And by dishonoring me, you're dishonoring the God you say you serve, which is interesting, okay? So there's this idea, this close idea, watch this now, between the idea of honor and glory, okay? So glory is what you see. Honor is what you give to someone whose glory you see. So if you follow that here, what he's really saying in that whole sentence is that the Father will honor. How will he honor believers who follow Christ in this way? They will see the glory of God in you. Wow. Isn't that what Peter says? Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and what? Glorify the Father on the day he visits us. So these people who you're maybe maybe they don't laugh, maybe they do laugh at you. Maybe they think you're you've lost your marbles. Okay. Sometimes maybe you think you wonder, you know. Not only one that believes this, you know. Um, God will see to it that they see him in you. If you're available, if you're that seed, that's just my job to die. That's it. And I'm here to honor God and, and say what I what, I, what he wants me to say. Saturate like Rick said in his prayer, you know, spend time in the word every day, right? Amen. It's get up in the morning, spend time in the word. Little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, you'll learn this. And you, what you're doing is you're giving the Holy Spirit more tools to work with through your mouth. So that in, in the appropriate time, in the right way, the word can come out of your mouth and God can use that in the moment. And if it, even if it doesn't get the reaction that you hope, you know, like they fall down on their face and they repent of their <coughs> sins right there. If, if instead they sort of like, whatever, that's just your opinion. And they walk away, okay? That's all right, because we're trusting who? God, right? And eventually, they will see his glory, and they will acknowledge that, and that will be honor for you. Okay? Wow. I didn't say this. Jesus said this. Well, I don't get honor. But, uh, let's, really? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There it is. Okay. <laughs> Now, verse 27, is my soul troubled. So now, now this, uh, in, in this Bible here, there's, a, there's a, a paragraph 
well, not a chapter break, but a paragraph break here, because the his attention turns to back to himself. Okay, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, and that's where our second point stops. Okay, that's the word words of Jesus. Now is my soul. What a strange thing to say. Uh, maybe. Uh, and there may have been other things. You know, John is not, you know, you can read the conversation with Nicodemus in probably 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 if you're really slow. That conversation lasted more than that, okay? It lasted quite a while, I guarantee you. And so in the economy of words, John is focusing on other things here. And like I said, the other gospels give us other things. We're not, I'm not sure if this statement here happened in the presence of those Greek people that are standing right there with Philip and Andrew, I'm not sure. Uh, it could be, and it, we'll say that it is, okay? However, whenever in that course of those days between the triumphal entry and the cross, whenever he says this, um, this word for troubled here is um, the same word that we have seen uh, several times before, particularly in chapter 11. I don't have, I'm trying to move us through here, so just take my word. You can look this up if you like on your own. But remember that that when he got to the grave of Lazarus and he sees all this going on, there's a word in there. We looked at several words in there for his emotion, and one of them is this word, and it talks about being agitated or stirred up in an emotional and intellectual way, right? So it's not just an emotional fear that he's feeling. This is a this is a combination. It's a very complex emotion. It's hard to describe um, because of that. But it's 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 a strong emotional reaction that that even includes um, some exasperation there at the response of what you're seeing around you. Okay, um, and and so. As I got to thinking, okay, well, how does this tie in with what he's saying? I think the Lord himself is expressing on a human level what we feel at times, too. When we know, okay, God is working, but, you know, I don't see that. And, 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 and those reactions that I get from unbelievers when I confront them about their sin or I, I tell them about the gospel or just I don't even say anything and they just don't even want to. They didn't want to be there. I, this one lady that's in our other Bible study, her sister-in-law, you know, they, they just hate the gospel. I wanted to do it. Sister-in-law didn't even want to get together with because she was going to be there for Thanksgiving, you know. And you get this, you sort of have this, it's almost this, almost that same kind of idea, this exasperation and this, this fear. So here he is caught, here's Jesus caught between the jaws on the one hand of the rejection of the nation, right? Their stubborn unbelief. And John's going to say here in a few verses, in spite of all the signs that he gave, right, they still rejected him. There's that exasperation on one side, like we saw in chapter 11, where that same word is used. But on the other side, here comes this other thing, which is other weight, which is what? The wrath of God which is coming, and Jesus is caught right in the middle of this, and that vice is just, you know, squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. 
wonder. He uses this strong word, and now my soul is troubled. That in the English it sounds so, uh, you know, like like Jesus is just this milquetoast. No, he's he's feeling this deep, really deep. Okay, um, as a man, he is he is troubled. Um, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from this time of not just rejection of the nation, but also sin bearing for the world. Right? He's tempted to say that, right? That's the, and no surprise, John doesn't deal with, <clears throat> with much about what was said by Jesus in his prayer in Gethsemane. Right, where he's sweating great drops of blood. Luke tells us that, right? And Father, you know, if it's your will, cup pass me. John doesn't give us any of that. This is the closest John comes to that, though, right here. And what's interesting to me is that you're already beginning to hear echoes of what's going to happen in the garden, right here. Jesus, I don't know, like I said earlier, I don't know if this is right on the cusp of what he's saying here, but sometime in that period of time between the triumphal entry and the start of the upper room, which happens before the garden, he's saying this. He's already feeling it. His soul is already feeling it. And the temptation is strong to say, get me out of here. Okay. But what does he say instead? My Lord, please me. For this purpose I came, Father, glorify your name, right? I didn't come to cop out. I didn't come to go all the way to this point and say, you know what? I said, I know I said I'd do it, but now that I see it, Right? Um, there's a lot of application here for us. <laughs> How many projects do you have around the house that you're like, no, oh, I just don't feel motivated to get that done? Or in my case, is you know, prioritization. Time is my big problem with that. But, but you ever get into something and you're like, man, this is a whole lot more than I thought it would be. <clears throat> I think I was hire somebody else to do it. <laughs> Just get some legs first, me. Yeah, yeah Diana's over here smiling and nodding. I won't ask for any show of hands. Thank God that that, that Jesus did not cop out, right? Um, before the garden, right? Before the garden. Now he had plenty of opportunity to flee away, but here's one right here. Maybe a day and a half or two days before all of that happens. He's already feeling it. He's already seen rejection of the nation he's feeling that exasperation with them and then he knows that the, that the sin of the world is coming the wrath of God is coming for him as well and he but he says father glorify your name notice that again here's glory in connection with honor okay here Jesus is honoring the father how is he going to honor him? Watch this. He's going to honor him by going to the cross in obedience. Every 
fiber of his being didn't want to go to the cross. You know that? Jesus did not want to go. I don't know if that's a shock. But in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he what? Endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy was on the other side of it, right? That's the way of the cross. That's, that's what he's calling us to. You know, it's not that you're to just enjoy putting yourself aside while other people who don't deserve it get it anyway, okay? But to see God's glory on the other side of that. I don't know how he's going to glorify me in this moment or in my life, right? But I know he's going to. I want him to. And so I surrender to that. And that's the, you know, that's that's the highest mission for the believer, isn't it? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We make it our goal, whether absent or present, that is, dead or alive, okay? In either life, whether here or in eternity, to be well-pleasing to him. Okay? That's what Jesus is modeling for us here. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want the nation to reject me. And, and, and to for most of them, most of these uh, leaders particularly, are going to end up in hell. Remember, Jesus told them that in chapter 8. He said, you're going to, he says, you don't believe that I am the one. You're going to die in your sins. And he doesn't say that relishing, oh boy, I can't. No, he's, he says it with tears. He sees Jerusalem with tears and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you if you would not. Right? And so he doesn't relish all these things that are coming, but he doesn't avoid it either. He goes through it. And he, he does it for the glory of God. He's our example. He's our example. That's our highest calling. The glory of God. Any thoughts? I've been doing a lot of talking. You know that this section toward the end of Jesus' life is the only place where he uses that word trouble. That's right. Trouble, trouble the word trouble is used. In the, in the Gospels many times it's used for others. But right here in John 11, like you said, is the first time where Jesus actually used it for himself for his trouble. That's that's very interesting too. Well that adds that adds weight to the to what he was going to go through, you know, as it got as it got closer. That's right. You know, it tells us too that that and, and and chapter eleven, raising Lazarus, which really is kind of the final stone that starts the avalanche of them really getting serious about rejecting him and putting him on the cross. Um, even that far, that's a couple of weeks at least before the triumphal entry. So, you know, three or four weeks before the cross, maybe, somewhere in there. Um, even that far ahead, he's already feeling it. Right? He's already exasperated with the, the people that are saying they're rejecting him and uh, the, the wrath of God that's coming. He had a lot of opportunity to escape, to escape if he wanted to. 
the Kibbutz. Long before the garden. The perfect role model. Yes. Thank God we don't have to go through that. We did it on our yeah. Any other thoughts? Questions? Well, I just think it's interesting that even though he didn't go to the cross, they actually ultimately didn't really murder Jesus. He gave up his body. Right. He did it. He did it. They, he could have called down angels, the Bible tells us, and he could have left at any time. So while he fought against, I think, probably that human part of him, he was there for a purpose, and he knew that purpose. And... You know, he was God and he gave up his life. And so I hear so many people talk about how they murdered him, mm -hmm. but they really didn't. Mm -hmm. they <laughs> That's what I always think about. They did try. They tried and, several yeah, times, yeah. but he, he always slipped through that because he knew <clears throat> that the Father's will was going to be the cross, not stoning, but the cross. Yes. And you know, I find that very ironic that they tried so many times to, to seize him and kill him. Literally. Uh, the text says when he was on the cross, <clears throat> and it says he gave up his life, it, it literally means he dismissed the spirit. He says something over the for the Father. It's not like I can not talk to you or not. It's my spirit to you. Mm -hmm. He gave it up and he took it back. Remember chapter 10, too, the Good Shepherd. In fact, I, I think I was listening to John that past week. He said, "Now five times, I will lay it down. Lay it down. Lay down my life for the sheep, and take it up. <coughs> this command I receive from my Father." It's just a great point. Nobody murdered. We're going to see that too when we get to his arrest, in chapter eighteen. Jesus didn't even need the angels. I mean, they were there. They yeah. wanted him. But he said he simply stepped forward when they say, you know, when they're coming up there. Judas, Judas apparently is the one that came first. John doesn't talk about that, but when you look at all the gospel accounts, Judas is going to step forward, gave him a kiss, and then it seems like Judas retreated back into the crowd that had come to arrest him as the others are arriving behind him. And, uh, and then Jesus steps forward and says, who are you seeking? He says, I am. And they fall down. <laughs> John's the only one who tells us that. But yeah, he didn't need the angels. He could have just spoken the word. You know, dying to self is not an easy thing to do. That's why you can't do it on your own. If you try to, you're you're just going to be exasperated and exhausted, and you just got you got to be that seed to just, just to surrender, to surrender to the Lord, and you know. But even though I don't see the results right now, then I am hoping to see. Let's. Uh, but we didn't get through the notes. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I promise we will get through these. All right, let's uh, close the prayer. Um, uh, there's so much here. and Not just in, in what's happening and setting the historical context. I, I like to almost put ourselves there in moments to, to stand there and listen mm -hmm. and see these words and, and, and know that the background behind what's being said and the meanings and, 
as the audience would have understood it and all of that. Um, but there's a lot here too for us in the way of application. As we, uh, we step out of the text here and we step into next week, uh, this way of the cross stands in front of us every moment. And uh, I think of what Paul says in Romans 8. Thank you for the Holy Spirit because if we walk by the Spirit, we are by no means gratify the flesh. We're not walking the flesh. Walking is that is that every moment the decisions that we make to, to move in one direction or the other. Just like steps. Every step is a decision. And we're moving one one way or the other. Nobody's staying still. We're all moving. And so the question is, are we living for ourselves or are we living uh, for your glory? And so I pray you will help us to take this challenge and to walk in it by the power of your Holy Spirit through the Word. That's the only way it can be done. And so honor yourself, glorify yourself through this church, through all of us, I pray. In Jesus' name.